Awesome. Welcome everybody to another episode of Just Two Dads. I'm Brian Altunian and uh, welcoming you all uh, to another episode uh, where Sean Francis and I, my, my partner in power, I used, to, I used to say our partner in crime, but it's our partner, uh, my partner in power, Sean Francis and I do this uh, weekly podcast where we get a chance to talk about the things that are affecting a lot of our families in, in, in many, many areas, but our particular focus is on those families who are dealing with family members who have special needs. And today is the Wednesday before before Thanksgiving in the crazy year of 2020. Um, anything anything goes, it seems like. Um, so first of all, I'm grateful to you, uh, Sean, that we get to do this. You do a lot of the legwork to get things started here. So I'm grateful to have you as a partner in this and in the business that we do together. And I'm grateful to uh, Sean Hall, our technical producer who's in Hawaii, who supports all of our efforts and to all of our family and friends who watch this podcast on a weekly basis and even after the fact and all of the podcast uh, streaming outlets. So we thank you all and grateful that you're all in our lives and um, grateful every day for the for the blessings that uh, uh, that we get and, and to make this all possible. And so um, just a moment of, of, of thanks and and uh, how are you, Sean? How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. Um little challenges like you know everybody has um but um like yourself i'm deeply thankful for thankful first and foremost for my for my family uh for my wife and my children and um and my family beyond that my parents every everyone um and i hope that everyone can hear that i'm um i'm thankful for people around the world that are watched like my good friend robert moorhead who attended grade school with me and is with us every single week from the u.s virgin islands which is where i am from <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so uh, with that, um, uh, let's get started with um, uh, with the show. You know, our guest it's, today. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm go excited. Ahead. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about this. I, I we love this guy. Love talking to to, to our guest today. Um, yes. Adam Hancock is. Uh, I was first when I Sean and I. For those of you who don't know, Sean and I are in the financial services industry, and uh, I Sean has been in the in the in the business a, a lot longer than I have. But uh, Sean was the first person that I met when I when I first walked in the door. I was first introduced to the company that we work with, and uh, immediately around surrounded and embraced, and uh, you know enveloped with love. And uh, one of the things that I, I I really helped to sort of melt any initial hesitations I had of what's what is this thing? What do you guys do? What's happening? Because Sean was such a real person. And then I got a chance to meet Adam Hancock, who. Uh, as a branch uh, branch office supervisor, our our compliance officer, who handles all of the securities business in our in our financial world, and um, just blown away by by Adam's generosity, his generosity of spirit, uh, every every aspect of uh, that you can imagine. Uh, Adam expresses kindness, empathy, and uh, and and a, a true amount of generosity. And as Sean and I have gone on and done special presentations, uh, corporate overviews and presentations for the special needs community. We've been so um, we've been graced by by Adam's presence in a lot of those presentations. Uh, and he brings such such credibility to the work that uh, that we do. And I, I I share clients with him because he's just he, my, my clients all feel taken care of with uh, with Adam. And, and when you hear his story, as beautiful as he looks there with that, you know, with his with his with his fancy his fancy, uh, his fancy fedora on, and uh, <laughs> uh, when uh, when you hear Adam's story, I think you're going to be completely blown away by um, just the quality of person that he is. So, without further ado, I just want to welcome you, Adam Hancock, to our to our weekly podcast. Say hello. Okay. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing well. It's good to be good. here. Good. It's great. It's great to have you. Um, I know. Uh, we'd love to hear your story, and we want people to understand, you know, really kind of who you are and where you've been and, and, and where you're going and, 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 and the special situation that you find yourself in today and um, how you all got there. So, so give us a little bit of a, a little bit of background, you know, where you come from, where you live in, what was your childhood like and, and, and where are you today? Can you do that? Okay. That? Um, a little bit over, a little bit of everything. <laughs> no problem. Um, so I was actually not born in the US, I was born in England, um, but it was my parents were going to school over there uh, they're both U.S. citizens, so I was automatically, you know, a U.S. citizen born abroad. Uh, came back, 
Um, we moved around a bit when I was a small child, uh, lived in New Jersey, lived in New Orleans, um, moved out to uh, California for a few years. Then we moved up to Reno, Nevada, and that was around uh, the age of four. Uh, uh, so it was just in the first couple of years that we were kind of all over the place. Um, yeah. It was my dad was, you know, taking jobs and looking for work in different areas. Um, grew up for about six years in uh, Reno, Nevada. And then um, we, uh, I, I got to the point where I was in fifth grade in public school, not doing so well, um, like failing in math and, you know, just like, uh, not not doing as good as I could be. And that following year, I was going to be moving to a junior high high school that had a really bad crime and drug reputation. And my parents were really concerned about that. And so just happened to be at that time that a private school um, was doing a promotional tour in our area and they contacted my parents. Um, they contacted them for two reasons. One, because, you know, uh, the potential of my sister and I becoming students, but also my parents were qualified to be faculty members. They both had uh, a little bit of background in education and the school was expanding. And so they they decided to go um, on, on board with the faculty. And as part of the compensation, uh, my sister and I got to attend this private boarding school and it was up in Oregon. Um, and it was basically, uh, you know, each, each parent got one child tuition free. And so it wow. basically made it so... Yeah, they didn't have to pay tuition for us, and we got oh, wow. an excellent education. Um, it completely changed my the early part of my life uh, because up until that point, education had been like burdensome, and and I wasn't succeeding. And uh, when I got to the private school, I really got hands-on attention and cleaned up my past education, and then just top-notch, top-quality education moving forward. Um, and I, I have to say that was probably really opened my eyes um, just on the subject of uh, of being educated and being able to use that information to improve your life. Um, and so that's where I came from uh, as a high school graduate. And I, I, that particular school, you picked a major like you would in college and you had the, the uh, academic requirements that you normally have, um, you know, for any uh, high school level diploma, but at the same time, you were able to specialize and apprentice in areas that were specific to the field you wanted to be in. And I picked the arts. I was in the humanities, right? So it was um, music, it was uh, drama, like acting. Um, and uh, th that was the area that I was pursuing in terms of a career. And so when I left high school, I came to Los Angeles, um, like so many other people, in pursuit of uh, a film career um, in the entertainment industry. And, you know, in doing so, I was going on auditions and the whole, you know, working odd jobs and that whole cliche. Um, and then while uh, in a scene study class, um, we were performing a scene and in the scene, uh, I'm not going to get into like gruesome details, but in the scene, there was a handgun being used as a prop. And uh, the, the handgun was supposed to be empty. Um, a bullet got left in the chamber and I got oh shot by accident. And that was how I ended up with a spinal cord injury. Um, that was at the age of 22. 22. And so 22, yeah, I was 22 years old. I had just turned 22. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, that kind of thing kind of turns your world upside down because I was- I couldn't imagine. Yeah, I was like very physically active. Uh, I was in sports. I was in film. I was, you know, there was a lot that had to do with my uh, my physical abilities. Um, and all of a sudden, I found my body paralyzed from the neck down. And, you know, Incredible. that <laughs> tends to be a bit overwhelming. Um, the paralysis um, not only included, you know, everything from my shoulders down, but my diaphragm. So I couldn't breathe on my own. Uh, you may, I don't know if you can hear it in this uh, particular broadcast, but there's a ventilator in the background on the back of my wheelchair. Um, and, you know, a lot of times when I'm on the phone, I have people ask me, what's that machine in the background, you know? <laughs> that's, a, that's a ventilator. Um, anyway, so there's a, a obviously a period of overwhelm where you're just kind of in shock. It's like being dropped off on the moon because I'd never known anybody in this situation. I had no familiarity with 
the the culture or the resources or anything and so uh, you spend a good amount of time just trying to find out like what do i do now you know what's yeah. what's how do you survive well is it you know there's all there's that early period where is it worth trying to survive is this is this a life that can be worthwhile you know and that's a legitimate question it's like sure you have to decide you know what is important to you um it does make you reevaluate a lot of um sort of the trivial things that we tend to have in our lives um and i think that's true of any special needs situation there's a period of crisis management right where you are constantly coping with whatever the situation is to try and figure out how to make it um more workable more livable um how to achieve some quality of life that's better than where you are uh and let me so I, let me ask you yeah. this just 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 for those who who catch us on a podcast if they can't if they're not seeing the if they're not seeing us on camera so how long ago first of all how long ago was that accident uh that was in november 1988 so that uh, the anniversary is coming up here on the 28th of this month uh it'll be two years. years yeah right. yeah wow and 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 the condition is 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 permanent. You are still in, in that same. So you're paralyzed from, really from the neck down. You have a ventilator that helps you breathe. Correct. Right. So right. So now, just for those, as as far as condition being permanent, uh, that is the medical prognosis. Right. I like that. But I have never ever agreed to. Well, okay, that's it. There's no hope. There's like it's always going to be this way. Um, to this day. I keep it. I keep an eye towards uh, a possibility of. Cause see, when I was first injured, the the uh, medical dogma at the time was that nerves do not regenerate. There is no way to recover. And then about ten years in, um, it started to be this breaking news that you know it was discovered that uh, nerve cells could regenerate. And all of this research started in spinal cord injury to see if there was a way to cure it. Um, and I always know just from my own personal experiences that the medical profession tends to be full of itself. Very very like authoritative. Yeah. Tell us um, if you will. So you you obviously went from you mentioned moments of despair or just asking an honest question, which is, you know, is it worthwhile to continue? You know, what do I do? If you can, how did you go from that thought to the decision that, you know what, this is worthwhile and arriving, because to me, it seems like you would always think, as long as I'm here, I have to have a flicker of light and hope and possibility in my head that a cure can come because I just, who am I to say that it's, that it's not? So how, tell us if you can't, how you went from the despair to the, to the decision is, yeah, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere as God, as long as God's not taking me anywhere. I'm here to make the most out of this life. How does that take that take place? Because we've known each other for years now, and I'm still hearing some of this and receiving it. Some of it literally for the first time. Some of it receive. I'm receiving it differently. So, forgive my ramble. I'm just uh, tell us if you no will. Problem. No problem. Um, it's actually a, a very profound part of the process in the beginning. Um, yeah. because there was a, a certain amount of hopelessness. Um, and not just because the doctors and all the authorities were telling me that this will never change and you're going to be like this for the rest of your life. I, I had I had a rebellious streak in me, so it was easy for me to just kind of mentally um, dismiss, well, not even dismiss, kind of just flip them off. You know, like that, mm -hmm. that was what was going on in my mind was like, I'm not listening to you. Um, I'm going to look somewhere else where there is some hope. Right. And so I held on to that just as a, as a personal thing, but then there's, there's your day to day quality of life. You know what I mean? It's like, what it takes to get out of bed. What, what can you pursue? How much time do you spend dealing with the condition? How much time do you spend creating some kind of life outside of that? Um, and in the beginning, that's extremely challenging. And the reason it's so challenging is because the con dealing with the condition and all of the new um, routines and stuff that goes with that is pretty much all consuming. And you, so you spend almost all of your time doing that and nothing else. And it used to drive me crazy in the early days that basically caring for me and my physical condition was all I got done on a daily basis. 
Um, and I was like, that's not acceptable. He's like, that's not a life worth living. You know what I mean? Because all you're doing is coping with the physical condition. And so there was that aspect um, sort of from a practical standpoint on a day-to-day point of view. And then there's, well, is there any hope? And not just hope of recovery, but hope of something more than just dealing with being paralyzed. You know, um, yeah. when your lungs don't work and you can't take a shower and you can't dress yourself and you can't go to the bathroom, uh, those things become pretty uh, challenging, right? And so then it, there's this whole thing of trying to negotiate that um, routine and those challenges down to something that's manageable. And then what do you do? What, let's say you accomplish that. Say you get you get your daily routine down to something that is manageable and now you have a little bit more time. Well, then what do you do? Right. Then, then what, what can do you do with do? it? Right. right. Um, and so I have to be honest, like for the first two and a half years after the accident, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't have an answer. I, I was, I was in this state of limbo and I can tell you that because I'm not in that state anymore, that being undecided, um, being in a state of maybe, maybe this, maybe that, I don't know, you know, it's sort of a, this big question mark that you have unanswered um, is one of the most miserable ways to exist. It just sure. is not, you have no purpose, you have no direction, you have no drive. And so every small challenge, every small problem is huge. It's, it's just like, it takes up your entire existence because you have nothing more important to focus on. Um, and it at about two and a half years, I came to the point where it's like, okay, enough. I, I need to be honest with myself. I need to be brutally honest and and you know pick this thing apart and uh, just regardless of my circumstances and the people around me, come to a decision for myself. Am I gonna do this thing or am I gonna figure a way out to like, you know, to figure out how to end my life in some way. Now I know that's kind of dark, um, and that's not it wasn't in my head like uh, like different ways to kill myself. That's not what I was contemplating. Um, but it's a real choice. You have A or B. You, you have to decide. Yeah. It's yeah. Anytime you have, especially a situation, the more challenging it is, the more you question: Is it worth it? Is it worth it to deal with this? And so. I did at one point, there was a, a like a two week period where I did nothing else, but like thoroughly pick it apart and, and um, brutally honest with myself and evaluating the situation and came to the conclusion there was too much about life in terms of the people and, and the, the subject matters and the things and the potentials that I love to give up. And it was at that point, it was like when I made the, that list of pros and cons, it wasn't even close. Like you looked at all the cons and you're like, yeah, those are inconvenient. Those are a pain in the butt. But then you look at all the things that you love, all the things that are are um, are aspire, to aspire to, all the things that are wonderful or could be wonderful about life. And it so outweighs all of the inconveniences that it was like, it just wasn't any, you know, I mean, when I was really honest about it, it just wasn't any comparison. But it's, it's amazing. Let me, let me ask you this. We talk about a, a lot about having a village, right? It always takes a village. And, and at the time, you know, from the time that you had your accident in the, in the years immediately following, did you have a village? Like, did you have people around you? Did, were there people that were more helpful than others like who was who was your support around that time because obviously you're going through this as an as an adult young adult right so you've got some people that you're looking at to for guidance but how are you like how are you getting help and support during this process yeah that's actually a very good question um there were people in my life that were like i was closely associated with that were not helpful and what i mean by mm. that is they were they were toxic right mm. they actually the situation more difficult. And then there were people like my parents and, and other people that were close to me that they were my support. They were my support group. They were, they helped with, they helped me cope with things. They helped me learn this whole new um, process and all the resources. And so it becomes very clear if you're paying attention, who's toxic and who's not. And, um, it, and I've learned pretty early on that your associations especially when you have something extremely challenging. Um, it, it matters so much. It's not something you can ignore, right? And so and getting the toxic people 
out of the environment, getting them away from the situation made it so much easier to deal with. Um, because the toxicity wasn't just affecting me. It was affecting those who were trying to support me. So my parents and my friends and the ones that were helping, um, they found it much harder because of the toxic personalities. And when those people left, it was like a weight was lifted. It was like things became so much easier. And yeah, there was still work to do, but it was not so daunting. Um, and that made a huge difference. And that actually happened before I came to grips with, uh, all right, I need to make a decision. I'm not gonna, I can't just wait around and see what's gonna happen. I need to choose, what am I gonna do? You know, am I gonna get to work and try and make this a life worth living? Or am I gonna figure some way to, to leave this life? Um, and and that's that came after I got rid of the toxic personalities. I, I think it's a great lesson for people in every situation anyways, right? If we're looking for personal growth and personal development, you you have to remove the toxic the toxic folks. Sometimes it's our it's our own family. I hate to say it that way, but right. Yeah. You bet. Remove yeah. toxicity and surround yourself. You say we say all the time. Associations are everything, and associating, mm -hmm. put surrounding yourself with people who support you, support those who are supporting you, and build you up. Man, that's a lesson for everybody. Like it doesn't really matter the whether you have a special needs situation or not. Like every person yeah. needs to remove toxicity and and uh, and move on. I know it's going to interrupt you, Sean. Did you? You were going no, to say okay. something, yeah? Yeah, I was going to ask, Adam. So what was it like, and maybe I'm complicating it here, maybe it was just very simple, removing those people? Did you have to have any conversations with them, or did you just decide, you know what, that number is going to be removed from my phone. I'm not going to return that phone call. That's the end of that. Um, uh, how, close, how close were they? Were they difficult because the relationships are close, or was it just one of those easy? Said well, no. I, I can tell you one of the people was my ex-wife. Um, and this is just, I mean, I'm not going to name any names or go into any, <laughs> any specifics, um, but she was a very negative influence on the entire situation. Um, and, and it was something that I had sort of coped with and dealt with prior to the accident, but it couldn't be ignored after the accident. Right. And that, that, that was a couple of challenging conversations, you know, um, and uh, part of it was, look, I, this is this is the path I've chosen. This is where I'm going. And she didn't agree with it. And so then it was like, um, it was like, well, so then that means, you know, you shouldn't be part of this. And it ended up it ended up resulting in the divorce and everything else that came after that. But it, it ended up being such a beneficial thing that when she left, it was it was just so obvious that it was the right thing to do just because it made everything more possible. It's like a cloud yeah. lifts to some degree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Yeah. Like, like any situation, it was probably just as good for her too, even though she might not have realized it at the time. Yeah, and, and I didn't really stay connected to her, so I don't know if she benefited from it or not, but it was kind All of right. like- We'll pretend that we'll uh -huh. you've got, she benefited. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so we we know enough about your your path to know what took place eventually with um, mentorship and, and, and that you received, as well as that which you began to give to those who also suffered catastrophic injury, and then leading to the work that you you do with us. I'm not sure what the order is of those things, but touch on that if you could, because you're so the order of things as we're going on chronologically is that you made this choice that you're going to survive, um, that you're going to thrive rather, life is worth living, and you begin cutting off these relationships. Start talking about, if you, if you could, the ones that then you replace, the ones that um, allowed you to exchange energy rather than have yours robbed that got you to the point um, uh, that you're on um, right now. Okay. Um, so after after having my ex-wife and some other toxic relationships out of the picture and then really uh, coming to grips with it myself that it, that I was not interested in, in ending my life. I was not interested in, in, um, in doing anything other than pursuing some way of making it worthwhile to live. Um, that I have, to I have to tell you that that change was um, not only foundational, but monumental. Like the, the weight that was lifted, having a, a purposeless existence, an existence without direction um, is, 
so hollow. So, I mean, it's so, I, anybody who lives that, I just feel so badly for them because it's a terrible way to live, right? And the moment I decided that, that it was worthwhile, now all of a sudden I had direction. Even if that direction was just, how do I improve my situation? Prior to that, it was like waiting around to see what was going to happen, you know? Yeah. And life kicks the crap out of you when you do that. When you wait around and do nothing, life happens to you instead of you making life happen. Um, and so when I started doing that, it, it made a huge difference in how I felt. And um, that made a huge difference in how everything else went. And then, sure, so, sure. I, so I'm, I'm looking at this point, you know, uh, what, so what's next, right? And I'm, I'm studying things that I can in terms of self-improvement and, and uh, having a close, closer association with my church and all of this stuff and basically coming to the personal realization that in order to be, um, to make my life better, I needed to take more responsibility. Um, that it was, that was the key to having more control is, you know, if you want a better future, the best way is to create it. And uh, so it was like, all right, so my dad was my caregiver. My mom was, you know, she was helping take care of the house and everything. And it was like, uh, I need to set my parents free. Like I've, I've trapped them here along with me. Wow. And I can't, I can't just like, I, I, I it was one of the things that was burdening me um, in, as far as my morale goes, as far as, you know, my, my own feelings of independence. It was like, I'm, I had just left high school. I had just started to become an adult and now they're roped back into taking care of me as if I was an infant again. Um, and so the first challenge became how to uh, get out on my own. And there was this whole uh, evolution of being cared for and then learning that I was the one who was in charge of my care. And so I needed to it was like I could use other resources. And in the beginning, it was a real challenge for my dad because he's like, I don't trust anybody to care for you. Like he saw yeah. what it was like in the hospital. He saw the incompetence that existed in the field. And I, I'm like, right. I get it. I, I completely understand that. I, I understand that you don't trust other people to care for me. And then I just looked at him and I said, do you trust me? And he kind of blinked and looked and looked back at me. And he goes, well, yeah, I trust you. And I said, wow. <laughs> Stop there, a, stop there for a, for a second, if you don't mind. Yeah. Whether you're listening on a pod, uh, you know, on one of the outlets that we're on, Spotify, Apple, whatever, or you're looking at this um, as it is on Facebook Live or will be on YouTube, stop and think for a minute of what he just said, because that's what I'm doing. You, your dad expresses legitimate concern. I don't trust anybody to take care of you. Care of you. You had the wherewithal and the depth within yourself to ask him, I understand that, to say I understand that, but then ask him, do you trust me? And maybe this, I'm complicating this. How do you arrive there? That's one of those things that is so simple. It's really small. It's like a mustard seed. It's that small, but it's so powerful to arrive at the point. Because you could have then responded by saying anything other than that. But it's a question yeah. versus a statement as well for you to ask him. How do you arrive at a point like that? We're asking, yeah, okay, I, I get that, but do you trust me? Yeah, well, the self development I had been doing up until that point, I personally reached that conclusion that I needed to take more responsibility, right? And mm -hmm. at first, it was like, well, what does that mean? Like, uh, what, what? How do you take more responsibility? It's like you're paralyzed from the shoulders down, like you know. And and one of the things was realizing that after my accident, I had come to the conclusion that I was helpless, right? right. I mean, it's not, it's not a huge leap to go, uh, well, I can't move my body, so that makes me helpless. But in retrospect, when I looked back at that, I went, well, you know what? <laughs> that conclusion is what's making me helpless. It's not the fact that I can't move my body. It's the right. fact that I did that I'm helpless. That so so valuable. So, so valuable. I, undecide that you know so i just reversed that decision and it was like all right so yes i can't move my body that means i'm going to need some assistance but it doesn't mean that i'm helpless you know yeah, so so in, in acknowledging that here's another question so and this is going back a little bit forgive me but and, and this applies to able-bodied neurotypical special needs or not but how does one determine how do you determine the difference between a toxic person 
and someone who is simply ignorant to your situation, but might be otherwise worthy to keep in your life, provided that they're educated? How does one decide from your perspective whether or not that's a person who's for whom there's no hope in terms of change and I need to cut off the relationship versus someone that may not be toxic, but just simply ignorant to your situation? Well, ignorance to your situation uh, is is easy to identify in terms of like they're unfamiliar or they'll make assumptions. You know, like I've had friends that says, well, I'll just come over and pick you up. And I'm like, dude, I'm in a wheelchair. What are you going to throw me in the back of your trunk? Like, how do you come over and pick me up? And they're like, oh, yeah. I forgot about that. You know, yeah. uh, that's ignorance to your situation. Um, you, you're talking to somebody and you say, I want to do X, Y, Z. And they tell you that can't be done. That's toxic. Mm. Right. Fantastic. Yeah. You're telling you, you can't accomplish something. Yeah. They're not on your side. They're right. against. Right. And so yeah. toxic when they're actively working against you, ignorance is just when they, they just are unfamiliar. You know what I mean? Um, right. So that's really the, the dividing line. When you have a few instances where somebody is actively stopping you or working against you, you know, look, this person is not a help. This person is a hindrance. Um, right. Well, and you know, it's funny because, as, yeah, as, as parents of, of, of special needs children, we often encounter those people who tell us what our children will not be able to do, those limitations mm -hmm. we talk about all the time. We had a ph phenomenal guest on last week. Um, who was autistic and recently elected to city council in, in Burbank, California, and was told all the things he couldn't do. So I think what you're saying, Adam, is so powerful for parents of special needs children to hear that there's there's hope, right? And to, and to trust the process that their child can get to a point where they're going to self-advocate at some point, hopefully, or they'll, they'll get to some position where they can start to make some of these decisions. And I think it's it's liberating to parents to think, oh my gosh, this is a possibility when like in your situation where there's complete physical limitation, I couldn't imagine being, being you know, your folks and going, um, okay, I guess um, I'm gonna let you, you know, figure this out on your own, right? Because like there's, there's, there's real, and again, I, I do want you to get to the point where I, I say this all the time for, you know, for me, if I wake up late and I, I just run out the door, throw on some shorts and a t-shirt and some flip-flops and I'm out the door in like three seconds. It, it, it's a significant effort for you to get out the door. So the, those physical limitations are there. Your the, the mental strength that you've had to make some of these decisions along the way, surround yourself with the right associations. So significant for people to, to see this progress. So That's why I love that you're sharing this, this story with folks. And I'm hearing stuff for the first time, known you as long as I have, and hearing this like Sean for the first time as well. So this is just, it's just, it's powerful. I think for, for families to hear and for individuals to hear that the limitations that others impose upon us are there are more their issue than anything. And if you can be absolutely. a self advocate, right. Or absolutely a parent, parent or advocates for children. Those limitations or those uh, hindrances or oppositions when they come from professionals, when they come from people uh, in a position of authority or in a, a position of altitude, um, they're more destructive. Yeah, because artificial legitimacy. Right, and they, yeah. they, they and they give you this feeling of doubt that is different than the feeling of doubt if some stranger says, you know, that you can't do it. You know, like well, yeah. you you can look at that person and go, you have no idea what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But you're talking to a doctor who is a specialist in a particular field, and they tell you right. that. And all of a sudden you go, God, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe it's true, you know, right. and that, that's damaging. So hold that thought and continue letting us know, because we're hearing things and receiving things for the first time, but based on what we do, in fact, know, we know the great things that you do now. We know how you help people in similar situations. So continue on that path. You've made the decision. You cut out the, the, the toxic relationships. You decided to free your parents by attaining your own independence. Tell us, take us down now down the road of your own independence and how did you do that? Because obviously they weren't equipped to do that. They were ready to literally and figuratively take a bullet for you and care for you for the rest of their lives if need be. Upon freeing yeah. yourself from them, you're obviously not gonna just go out on your own and say, all right, I'm just gonna get a place next week. How does that happen and how do you get on the path that you're on right now? Okay, so I had that conversation with my dad where I asked him if he trusted me and, and he told me, yeah, he trusted me and I said, well, that means just 
realize that I'm going to be the one that's going to be in charge of my care. I'm the one that's going to be directing it, you know. And so if something bad happens to me, it's because I allow it. And he, it made him pause a little bit and he gave it some thought. And then he goes, you know what? Okay, I'm all right with that. Like that, you know, and that was a big step for him because he had been there since the beginning, uh, sure. since like since the injury, like since in the hospital, he was very much stuck in the same place. Like there is no solution because I'm the one that has to care for him because nobody else can. And, this and it was two years in at this point, right? Sorry. Uh, that well, the two and a half years was that thing where I decided that life was worth living, right? right. Uh, this is probably. It's probably a decade later. This is probably like oh, wow. twelve. Yeah, this is probably like twelve years. And when I say self development, it was not a, a couple of weeks of reading a book. <laughs> yeah, I was working on it. Some work. Um, you didn't yeah. go to you didn't go to a Tony Robbins um, session and then just no, no. <laughs> new. Yeah, gotcha. I, I was working okay. at. I I was stuck too. I felt trapped. I felt like there wasn't a solution, and I knew that wasn't the truth. So I was searching for an answer. And the answer I found for myself was taking more responsibility. But then when I had to talk to my dad about it, I had to explain to him what that meant. It meant me taking responsibility for my care, me taking responsibility for my condition and coming to grips with the fact that I thought I was helpless was part of that process. Because when I realized that that was false, that I wasn't helpless, it was just that my body was paralyzed. Um, that changed my attitude about how you know how I could be in charge of my care, how I could do something about it. Um, and so at that point, it was like, all right, so now it's okay with everybody. Like my father's not freaking out. And and I was, I have to be honest with you, um, I was scared. I was scared. I was scared and shitless. Uh, yeah. Excuse my language. <laughs> but I was, you know what I mean? I was. Yeah. I had been taken care of very well by my father. And now I was going to venture out and take on this thing that was like, well, we'll see. We'll see this this theory of you being in charge. We'll see how much you could be in charge. Like how much, how difficult is this going to be? Um, and I had to look around for a place to go. And there were some, there were several nursing homes in the area, right? And Medicare makes a, a like a checklist of they rate they rate the different nursing homes. And I I picked the top ten on the list. And I went, I called them up, and I went and took tours. Um, and I eliminated got it down to the top three that I was like, okay, these are places that I, I would be willing to go. Um, and there's this interesting phenomena that happened at the time is like my number one choice didn't have an open bed. Um, number two called me about two weeks later and said, we do have an open bed. And so I ended up going to my, my second choice rather than my first choice. And when I got there, like when you're admitted to a place like that within the first two to three days, you're supposed to meet with the attending physician that runs the place. And they're supposed to do an, an interview with you. And during the interview, uh, the doctor looked at me and he goes, you don't belong here. And I'm like, I'm open to suggestions. Yeah. Like, wow. You got something you want to tell me. I'm, I'm more than willing to hear it. And so yeah. he told me about this, new, this place called New Start that is basically congregate living facilities that were specifically designed for people with spinal cord injury to help them transition, like basically move in and be taken care of it and get, get a handle on their routine and then transition into the community. And um, that was the whole purpose of the facilities. And I was like, great. And so he gave me the contact information and two weeks later I was there. So I spent only like eight weeks, two months basically in the convalescent home. And he's absolutely right. It's not, it's the, those places are where they warehouse people that they don't know what to do with. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're not made so that people can try to create some kind of productive existence. Um, yeah. And so I moved into this place called New Start and, you know, uh, learned some stuff and was dealing with people that they were all in agreement with me being more in control, being more like taking some kind of constructive path. Um, and after being there for a while, moved into what's called a step down facility or basically it was independence training. It's a, a house where you learn to do what you would basically do on your own and then moved into the community. Now that was just the process of living in those different places. During that time, um, when I felt like I had control over my routine and my care, it was like, okay, so part of the goal here is to become self-supporting. In other words, to make enough money to, to pay your way, you not have to rely on the government programs in order to survive. 
that was part of the goal that I had set up for myself. I didn't know whether it was possible. And until you start to try, you don't know how difficult it's going to be. Sometimes it's easier than you expect. And sometimes it's a whole lot harder than you expect. Um, but during that process, it was like, all right, well, I've, I've got my, my personal situation under control. I've sort of worked this care thing down from a full-time full-time job to a part-time job. And my goal is to get it down to being like a hobby. And then I have more time in my life to do something else. Um, yeah. And during that period, it was like, well, if I'm going to be self-supporting, that means I need to get a job. And I was like, oh, God, I do not want to get a job. And it wasn't because I didn't want to work. It was because I knew what it meant to have a job, to call, you know, to punch a clock and trade your your hours for dollars. It was like mm -hmm. you had no hours and not enough dollars. And that's exactly what I wanted to avoid. It's, and it was especially true in my situation because being paralyzed, it's like you needed some flexibility. You needed, uh, like, I, I made this list of things that I needed. Um, I needed something that had unlimited income potential where I could make a lot of more money. Um, and if you're working an hourly wage, that's just very Not unlikely. Happen. Not right. Happen. Right. Right. Um, and I needed uh, time flexibility in terms of my schedule and being able to do that kind of stuff. Um, sure. And so I made a list and I'm going, does this even exist anywhere? I, Interesting. And that's what I'm thinking. And lo and behold, I get a call from people that I've known for years, right? Um, Michael Coleman, which is the, the one that I ended up, basically, he ended up being my mentor. But he reached out to me and said, listen, um, like he knew my situation. I knew him before I had my accident. Um, and so he reached out to me and said, listen, I've had some, some very, uh, a very successful experience with this company. You need to come down and check it out in case it's something that can help you. And it just happened to be right at that time when I was looking for something like that. And, and, um, and at each stage, it was interesting because it was like I would set a goal and then I would start to work on it. And the first thing I would run into is my own doubts, my own you know, can I do this? Is this something I can do. Um, sure. And my experience with the company was no difference. I came down and saw the presentation. I was like, this is amazing. Like the potential is so obvious. You can't deny it. But then the the very next thought that I had, is it something that I can do? Well, well, I, it, are they going to ask something of me that I won't be able to do because I can't move my body from the neck down? Um, yeah. And you know, and I had that conversation with Michael and he's like, look, we've got a training program. It's from the ground up. Uh, we'll take it a step by step. And if you run into challenges, we'll figure out a solution. And that gave me the confidence to to go ahead and get started. And that whole process of getting started and going through those steps and, and overcoming the challenges as they came, they changed my level of confidence. They changed my certainty that it was possible to have a better life. And all of that makes a huge difference in your quality of life. Even if you're not there and you just have the hope that you can get there, that makes that makes all the difference in the world. You leave the world of crisis management. That's something that only happens if you if you're not on top of it. You know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. It allows it allows you to 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 move into some measure of control of directing your life towards a worthwhile goal. And so. No, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Keep going. Well, that's essentially the definition of happiness, you know, like the overcoming of obstacles towards a known goal. That's what mm -hmm. gives anybody satisfaction in any Fulfillment. field. Yeah. Fulfillment. Yeah. Exactly. And how it, long, how it, long ago was that? I'm sorry, Sean. I was just, how yeah, long was that when you got started? I can tell you I got started in 2006. So that was 14, 14 years, years ago. ago. Um, wow. And there's been stages throughout that that I've had like major epiphanies and major changes and like moving to the next level and um and it's anything boring, man. It, you know what I mean? It's like yeah, it, it it is that worthwhile life that I saw when I was evaluating back then. You know, like weighing the pros and cons. It was like these are the things that make it worthwhile: the people yeah, wow. you meet, um, the experiences that you have. The accomplishments that you that you were able to achieve, those kinds of things. That's the that's the, the same year that I got started as well, but we didn't meet until for at least three or four years after that. So we're talking yeah. about, you know, so financial services, and we'll get into some of that and how it touches on special needs. Um, 
but several things. Number one, what was your greater concern? No experience in the industry or how your injury and your situation would affect your ability to do it or all of the above? I would have to say it's a combination of those two because it wasn't like, I mean, my education provided me with confidence of being able to learn whatever I needed to learn. So I didn't have any doubt that I could learn what I needed to. Um, and not everybody has that. So that that's definitely a, you know, it's like you're willing to, to fail forward. You're willing to fall on your face. You're willing to do the things wrong and then get up right. off and, and like figure out how to do it right. Um, right. You can learn just about anything. Um, but then there was this unknown aspect of it. Like, is there going to be some physical aspect of the job that I'm completely unaware of that mm -hmm. somehow paralyzed would stop me from being able to do? And right. I, that was in very much in my mind. That was very much in the forefront of my mind when I got started. And what I found was as I was going through the training process and as I would go through each new challenge, I would, I would look around the corner and go, yeah, I'm going to have to do that. And that might be it. That might be as far as I can go. I don't know. And then when I get there, it was like a shadow. It was like there was, <laughs> there was no validity to it whatsoever. And it was like, wow. It's like everything I've learned up until this point gives me all the solutions I need to take on this particular challenge. And so it was just I moved past stuff that I thought was sort of the limitations. And then when, when you've done that once or twice, you start to look, look around and go, what else do I think is impossible? You know, let's see if we can test that balance. Again, it's so powerful for people to hear who don't have these limitations and these issues, right? A lot of the limitations we impose on ourselves. And man, to be thinking that there's a challenge ahead of me and then I get to the corner and it's just a shadow and like, okay, well, what's the next challenge? And, and knowing that to your point, you've been there a couple of times, like I'm not afraid. You know, we, we hear Ed, Ed, folks like Ed Milet, you know, motivational speaker, always say like, I'm afraid to turn my head in a certain direction because I know I'm going to be able to go get that thing because my <laughs> mind is made up. Like, I don't have any more limitations, right? I know I'm going to turn, I'm going to, I'm going to seize that thing that I now have my eyes set on because every time I do it, it, it comes true. You, that's a, that's so powerful, Adam. It says it's so deep and, and meaningful for people who, who, who struggle and, and, and realize that a lot of that struggle is made up. Right, mm -hmm. it's made up in their own mind or imposed by somebody else who doesn't understand the situation. And so, man, what a what a great testament to the power of positive mind mind thinking. Yeah, John, three 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 things, Adam. One is you gotta. We're gonna have you back at some point, and then you have to be able to write a book, have your own podcast, or something, because more people need to know about what you have to offer. So, as a matter of fact, I'm gonna put it out there right now. Every now and then, we're we're gonna have you back where your condition and, and, and you being in the chair is what introduces you, but that won't even be part of the discussion. We're just going to be talking about, you know, mental toughness and overcoming the greatest challenge, which is our mirror and, and ourselves. Um, so that I wanted to put that out there, but then I wanted you to touch on two things. One, which is we know, we now know that you also mentor people who have suffered catastrophic injuries and guide them towards independence and things of that sort. So if you will touch on that and then touch on how you, as a result of the work that we do, manage to straddle, you know, between your financial independence and the concern about having your benefits affected. Because there's people that, you know, your situation or your response to your situation is very exceptional. Most people, you know, the system has them in a situation where they're designed to not go work because the only thing that they've known that feeds them fish is threatened to be taken away if they learn too well how to catch fish on their own. So if you will touch on how you got to mentoring people that suffer catastrophic injuries as well, and then the financial uh, part as it relates to balancing one's benefits and things of that sort. So, okay. So good. So good. Uh, well, so good. I can tell you in terms of the, the mentorship that I've done um, with other people that you know, have spinal cord injuries or some kind of catastrophic injury where they find themselves physically disabled, um, the biggest challenge is the six inches between your ears. You know what I mean? It's like your own ideas about your situation define so much your own limitations. Um, and in early stages, it's that phenomenon I was saying, like being dropped off on the moon. I mean, if you can imagine being transplanted from the US and being dropped off in any country where you don't speak the language, you don't understand the customs, you don't understand the culture, you don't know what the resources are, it's similar to that, except 
on top of the fact that you don't know any of those things, you can't move your body. You can't move your hands. You can't move your arms, right? And so you need somebody to feed you, to bathe you, to dress you, to get you out of the chair and into bed and out of bed and into the chair and all of that, right? Um, and so you are in this feeling like no man's land, especially if you if you've never known anybody that's in a wheelchair. You don't know what they the what they have to deal with. Um, <clears throat> and so in the beginning, excuse me, just a little dance right there, a little shaking. Um, that because if you don't know if you know nothing about that situation, the early stages of mentorship is introducing them to the resources. Right. Like these are the things you can use to help you in your situation. And those are generally accepted. Like you don't get a lot of pushback on I don't want to use access paratransit. You know, um, that's a public transportation that you can use if you're handicapped. Um, right. It's like it's like taking a bus, except it's designed usually for a wheelchair or somebody who's not ambulatory or something like that. Um, and although that's not ideal, it's better than being stuck at home with no transportation at all. I used right. it for a year until I got my own van, you know, right. um, and all of those evolutions of, you know, moving from that to the next best thing. Um, those you learn things along the way. And so trying to pass on some of that so they don't have to learn everything by trial and error. Um, mm-hmm. That's the first stage of the mentorship. Um, so once that. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, just me, I wanted to make sure that I know there's an organization that you work with and I want to make sure that our great producer, Sean Hall, puts that in the chat so that people are aware of them, too, and how they've worked with you, helped you and allowed you to help others, too. Sorry. Absolutely. Um, the name of the organization is Freedom to Live Foundation, um, and they specifically help people with independence training so that they can transition out of institutional life into a life in the community. Um, and it's that independence training is everything because it, it not only teaches you the resources you have and how to use them, but then, then at that point, once you've established that as a foundation, then it's like, okay, where do you see yourself going? What do you want to accomplish? What do you have in your head? That's telling you, this is as much as I can do and I can't do anymore. Um, Because there is a discomfort that goes with challenging your own concepts of of what your limitations are right i mean there are people that that will there there are quotes like um arthur c clark who is a a science fiction author right he says the only way to to find out what's possible is to go a little bit past the, the boundaries of what you think is impossible and discover what's really there and it's very true because you we have these comfort zones it's like this bubble right and it's the limitation of what we think is acceptable it it's part of like, well, I can handle this, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't venture beyond that because it's uncomfortable, but not because it's impossible. And if you can just basically condition yourself to, to be willing to be uncomfortable, you know, to be comfortable being uncomfortable, you can reach past that boundary and you start to discover that it's it's false. It's not, it's totally in your head. It doesn't have anything to do with what's really possible. Um, and that stage the mentoring that's more challenging and more um it's more varied person to person than any other stage of mentorship because it's how much how much courage they're willing to muster how much they're willing to confront in terms of their own ideas of their own limitations mm-hmm. and and coaching somebody on that um some people are you like you can say you can say do it and they'll do it other people you can say do it and they're like yeah, i don't know I, like i i can i can kind of deal with you know just waiting for my social security disability check and watching tv all day long and not really you know they become and so it's it's that mediocrity that you're battling and that has a lot to do with your your personal fortitude your personal um strengths um and if you're dealing with somebody who's toxic they have a negative outlook and everything is impossible because of their outlook. So uh, all of those factors have a lot to do with the individual themselves. Um, One of the things I found is that the challenges we have as human beings, uh, our own limitations, we we have our own little prisons that we build, that kind of thing. um, They're more difficult to ignore 
when you get into a special needs situation because they're so much more pronounced. Yeah. Like if, if you have a if you have the idea that you know let's say you can't earn beyond a certain amount of money and then you become paralyzed or you have some other kind of special needs or, or, or disability type situation now that that limitation that mental limitation is so much more profound um whatever attitudes or or deficiencies you have prior to a special needs situation when you carry it into a special needs situation it becomes magnified it becomes right. more obvious it's just harder to ignore uh, yeah, people are, you know, people walk around ignoring that stuff on a regular basis all the time um I remember there's a movie, uh, Shawshank Redemption, with Tim Robbins. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One, of my one of my favorites. But there's this pivotal line in the movie where he's been rejected for parole, and you know the, his his student has been assassinated, and all this stuff. And he's sitting there talking with Morgan Freeman, and he says, I, "I guess it just comes down to one thing: get busy living or get busy dying." You know, and absolutely. What's so profound about that is it doesn't matter your situation. It doesn't matter whether you're paralyzed from the shoulders down or if you're, you know, a billionaire. It's like that applies. It's like life is either something you pursue and actively figure out how to make it better or it kind of pushes you around. So you either get busy living or you get busy dying. There's just no in most definitely. We lost Brian there for a second. I'm not sure. I'm sure he'll yeah. be back in. We got just a, um, a minute or two, though. There he is. He's gonna come. Uh, yeah. Let me just get him in here. Yeah, there's no, just two, there, there's no Just Two Dads podcast without some sort of technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> we just come up with, and by the way, you know, right? get busy living or get busy dying, right? That's We're just going to keep going, right? Just keep pushing through the, the limitations hey, that's of it. technology. <laughs> Adam, if we touch on this then, just talking about the financial pieces, it's the, it's the work that we do, the work that we're honored to do with you as well. If you can, and I don't know that this, um, we can distinguish between being uh, disabled physically as your situation is, or having an intellectual or developmental um, uh, disability. But touch on some of the things that people, able-bodied, neurotypical or not, take for granted that you think is very important as uh, as it relates to financial service education. Things that, if you can name like three or five things that most people should have in place, but especially in those situations that people probably take for granted and maybe listening now, because I've had conversations with a couple of people this week, particularly in talking about this event that we have coming up on December 2nd. And many of them have said to me, I am so concerned about what my child is gonna do as they get older or when I'm not here. And other people responding in, in, in conversation threads and pages and things like that saying, yes, me too, me too. And some of them wanting to get information that we'll have at the event, but others, Honestly saying, I try not to think about it. And I find yeah. myself in a situation where it, it is so much easier for me to not judge people. I don't know why, but um, I understand that it's easier to do nothing. So with that said, and having to make the choice of doing something, what are some of the things that you think are most important that you know most people should be thinking about um, uh, as it relates to, to those uh, financial instruments? Right. Well, uh, the first comment I would like to make is that the, the conclusion that it's easier to do nothing usually comes from a lack of knowledge. Like you don't understand enough to, to realize there's something that you can do. Um, right. When, when you're overwhelmed by, by all of this, I mean, the, the basic is, is that the system is not set up to you, for you to be uh, financially successful. When I say the system, the si system, I mean the economy, um, the way that the banking industry works, uh, mm -hmm. the way financial institutions treat people is not a way for them to be successful. Um, mm -hmm. If you get your advice from credit card companies and from banks, they make their money by putting you into debt. Predators. And I call them yeah. predators. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that sorry you know, out. That, that type of education makes you feel like well there's nothing i can do about it 
You know what I mean? Because if yeah. that's the, if that's the only way that you can deal with your finances, then it really is easier to do nothing and just kind of, you know, be blown around by whatever the prevailing winds are. Um, the yeah. thing is, if you become educated on how money works, if you become educated on um, the things that are available that that allow you to take some measure of control, then you're in a position to make an informed decision. And without that informed decision, it really is easier to do nothing because it's just so confusing. It's just you don't know who to trust. You don't. You know what I mean? Um, right. So that's that would be the very first thing. And so I, I completely understand people is like, I'd rather not think about it. And all that is is an indication that they don't understand enough that they know how to think about it. <laughs> and so the process there is helping to educate them. Like these are the fundamentals that will make it so that you have some control over your finances. And those mm -hmm. fundamentals things that we deal with when we when we sit with a client and we customize, you know, how much money you have coming in, how much money you have going out. That's just basic budget type information, you know? And if you're making enough, uh, then what are you doing with the surplus? How are you putting that to work for you? How are you making it so you can get towards your goals? Um, sometimes that's rehabilitating their ability to have a goal. <laughs> sometimes they're right. like, they're so the ability beat up. to dream again. Yeah, exactly. They're so yeah. beat up. They don't. They don't have. They can't look that far ahead. And so helping yeah. to rehabilitate that is a service in itself. Um, right. And then providing them with those tools and an understanding so they can make informed decisions will help them to guide their future. And those are those are like not any fancy financial concepts. You don't need a you know an MBA for Harvard or financial degree to, to do those kinds of things. It's not a technical thing. That's right. more a people thing. Um, and then our job is to take the really complicated aspects of the products and services and basically translate them so that the people can understand them and know what the best choice is for them and help them make those choices either with our recommendations or the education that we provide. And Excellent. That happens in the as a you know as a financial client, but also happens as a business associate because you learn things about business and about the industry that you wouldn't learn otherwise. Um, Absolutely. And those aspects are invaluable. Like uh, like I was saying before, if you have uh, some kind of hindering mindset and you bring it into a special needs situation, it becomes more magnified. Well, it's the same thing with a money issue. You have uh, anything about your finances that is fundamentally missing or, or out of off track, out of whack, those things, um, they become more pronounced in a special needs situation because that has to do with your future, the future of your child, the future of yourself. Um, and if you can address those, it takes some of the anxiety, some of the unknown and puts some measure of control in place for the person. That's, That's fantastic. It. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, we're coming up on our hour, which always seems to go by in about five minutes. So fast. That's another, that's another one of those things I'm thankful for because it's an indication that we're having such a great time. Um, so, Brian, if you would do the honors of wrapping up. Sure. I, first of all, I just want to thank you, Adam, for um, being such an amazing, uh, an amazing resource. Um, you're an amazing, again, incredibly generous person. I think people what you the value that you added today impacted so many people i know it's going to impact so many people as as it does every time we hear you speak and every time we do something with you um the lessons that you mentioned are things that everybody who has you know can, can benefit from so um thank you very much for spending your time with us we're gonna do we do we're gonna start doing some bonus content just for everybody to know as well we're gonna do some bonus content where with some of our guests we're gonna spend some extra time together one-on-one -on -one doing some uh you know get a little digging a little deeper so some of those questions that sean was asking and things about finances and, and stuff where we can be of service adam we're gonna hope hope to have you on to do some of that bonus content as well so thank Absolutely. you sure thank Definitely. you so much Definitely. and and during this time of gratitude and uh and Thanksgiving, uh, you know, um, again, I'm, I'm grateful for for you, uh, Sean Francis, and for our technical producer, Sean Hall, who uh, does amazing work for us. Um, you guys are doing this this uh, this this every week. Um, my family, my kids, my children. Robert, I'm sorry, I call Robert Moorhead calls us out every time we say my kids instead of my children. Um, 
for everybody who's watching or listening, we, uh, we're grateful for you and thankful for the support and uh, hopefully we can continue to bring value to you. So in this time, uh, unprecedented times that we've been living in for the, in this year of 2020, I would say this is a time for empathy and love. So share that wherever you can and uh, express that wherever you can. And, um, and uh, with that, Sean, if you wanna finish us yes. off here. I will, I, I, will, I, will, I will do that. And even though we're running over, I should have asked this before. This is a new tradition we have, Adam, if you can answer this for me really quick. Think of one thing, one belief um, that you held, held on to strongly, almost to the point of affecting your way of living, um, that you defended so strongly that you'd be willing to fight someone that had an opposite belief. Give us one example of such a belief that you now no longer have and has changed. Interesting. Um, hmm. That's not not particularly easy thing to do. I would say <laughs> probably um, the belief in my own limitations. Right. Like I've been. Mm -hmm. I've been. I've have through my circumstances have been taught over and over again that the ideas I have about my own limitations are always smaller. Like the, the ideas that I have are smaller than what they truly are. Um, and right. each time you discover that, each time you expand beyond that, it gives you a new, uh, a renewed sense of vitality in life. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it lifts you up. And so that process of, uh, of like, there's only so much you can do. Um, that idea, I, I've that that has become less and less um, valid to me, just Excellent. because the more, the more I surpass it, the more I start to go. You know, that really isn't true. Profound. Excellent, excellent. That's the perfect answer. With that said, I want to thank it. you so much for your time. I want to thank um, um, my. Uh, the amazing woman in my life, which is um, my, my wife and my mom and um, um, my children, my family, my friends, everyone that takes the time to tune in uh, with us every week. And a couple closing remarks. You know, in terms of what you said earlier, make an assessment, whether you're in in a wheelchair or not, make, make an assessment of whatever your assessment is and, and determine whether or not you really are going to live not you might not necessarily have to be determining whether or not you're going to take your life if it's that if it's that serious make sure you do get some help though because there um there are things out there and we all need to make sure that we set ourselves and those that assist us in any way free by taking it taking as much responsibility for ourselves and our success as we possibly can and um just know that there's somebody out there who needs to know that you care that you love them and that they matter and Let's all find a way to, um, you know, take a license to dream again. That, that's something that can be very difficult to do. And then the very last thing, you know, our event is going to be on December 2nd um, on, um, on, on Zoom. And the link is in the stream. If you're looking at us uh, live, you, you can register. It's a free event. We just want to make sure we add value to people's time. We're never going to be as young as we were when this already conversation began. So we want to make sure that we walk away with value added to your time. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, thank you guys both. Thank you. Thank you, buddy.